The title of my message is Sifted Like Wheat. Getting rid of the chaff, so to speak. Now, if you're familiar with agriculture at all, you know exactly what's being talked about in that illustration. The wheat, the grain, the kernel, it is of value. It's filled with nutrition. And the chaff, that hull, it serves its purpose, but by the time the grain, the fruit, is ripe, it's really just worthless and waste. And in our lives, there's a lot of that stuff that is the chaff, so to speak. It's the stuff that God would like removed from our lives so that the fruit of our lives can really manifest for his glory. And it's amazing the things that the Lord will allow us to go through to remove chaff from our life. It's in those moments when we're going through things that we don't see them for what they really are because we don't like what they seem to be. It's painful sometimes to go through winnowing, getting rid of the chaff. Now, it's kind of maybe a hard picture for you to imagine, but the, the beating of that grain to drive out the chaff and separate the grain from the chaff, it, it's kind of a, an abusive thing for that poor plant. But in a similar way, we go through that sometimes, and it's no less punishing at least an outward appearance. And sometimes um, we can be really surprised by how we react to different situations in our life. You ever been surprised when something happens and you thought you would be able to deal with it in a certain way? You would be able to handle it in a certain way? You are capable of, of going through whatever it is and then all of a sudden when something happens, you go, holy smokes, I was not ready for this. I've shared this before with some of you, many of you probably, but it's one of those experiences I just laugh at in myself, but it really surprised me at the time. Cindy and I used to live out in the country on what would have been my great-grandparents' farm, an old farmhouse, and an old barn and all the old buildings and the old-fashioned yard light, you know, that had the switch in the house, in the porch. So when you want to go out, you could turn it on, and when you come in, you turn it off. You know, not one of those fancy automatic things. And we liked that because we liked to go outside when it was really dark so you could look at the stars and see all of that without the, the, the light. But one night we were laying in bed. Well, we're not laying in bed. We're sound asleep. It's the middle of the night. And I'm awakened for whatever reason. And I notice the yard light's on. And there's only one switch. And it's in our house. And we didn't turn it on. I'm laying there, feeling something creep all over me that I didn't want to be there. Guess what that was? Fear. Come on now, I'm a macho big guy. I can handle things. I can protect my wife. No big deal. So I laid there long enough until I woke up Cindy and said, Honey, did you turn the light on, please? No. What do you think happened? Well, there's not many options here, right? In my mind, there's only one switch, and it's in my house. Therefore, someone's in my house. Big, bold, courageous wimp. So I suppose i got to go do something because I'd have really felt bad sending Cindy. <laughs> but she might have went with less fear. I don't know. So I'm looking around our bedroom, and I find a weapon. 
Those of you that remember this story, you know what the weapon was? An empty duffel bag. <laughs> Said wooden nickel on it. <laughs> Tells you where I was at, doesn't it? I pick up this empty duffel bag, and that's my weapon, and I head down the stairs. And every step I'm taking down the steps, fear is just, I, it's just like, what am I afraid of? It caught me totally off guard that I would be so afraid of something so far unseen. And your imagination's going crazy. You can already picture the outcome. I got a duffel bag. He's got a gun. Well, I get downstairs. The door's locked. Well, I should have been relieved, right? No, I was more scared because that means he locked it after he came in. We are not getting out. The reality was I went through the house with my duffel bag, ready to do battle. And thank God there was no one in the house. No one in the house. We found out what happened. That old light pole had really old, loosely hanging wires and a big owl had flown through and crossed the wires and of all things, it turned the light on. I was afraid of an owl. But it surprised me that that's how I would react with such fear. And I think we can think of different times in our life when the same thing has happened to us when we discover that the confidence we have in self isn't going to cut it. And I believe many, many times it's a God thing. And even if it's not a God thing, I believe it's a thing that he will use for his glory if we can step back and, and, and analyze and ask maybe one simple question. God, what do you want me to learn in this valley that I'm going through? This morning, Pastor Bob in Bible, Bible class, I I only heard parts of it, but he was talking about humility. Being humble and understanding what that is. Well, today I'm going to look at an event in the lives of the disciples, and I believe all of the disciples, but in particular, Peter takes front and center as he often does. And it's interesting to me because where we're going to look in the Scripture is in the Gospel of Luke, and it's in chapter 22 if you want to turn there, but it's in the section of Scripture right after they're taking the Last Supper, the Passover meal, and just hours, literally hours before Jesus is going to be arrested and the beginning of the, the horrible agony and pain of going to the cross. And I'm thinking to myself, of all the things that could have been going on through Jesus' mind, he deals with this issue. And I don't know if you've seen it as dealing with this issue, but I believe clearly what he's dealing with is pride. Knowing that difficult times come and our confidence in our of ourselves is going to fail. It's going to let us down every time. I'm going to read, and I'm actually going to start at verse 24 of, of chapter 22 of Luke. The Lord's Supper has just ended. And you can also read about this in particular in Matthew and Mark. I'm going to just point a couple things out from there. But Luke gives a more detailed uh, of story or picture of what took place. So they've just had the Last Supper, just been sitting with Jesus. And verse 23 says, And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. What was this thing? Jesus had just told them, One of you is going to betray me. Judas had already gotten up left the table. Judas had already sold his soul to the enemy. Judas was lost. 
And then the very next thing you read in verse 24 is, and there also arose a dispute among them as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. I, I, I just try to picture, and this is so human. I tried to put myself above thinking, this is ridiculous. How could they do that? And I'm thinking, boy, Mike, you'd have been right there with them. Jesus has just had the Last Supper with them, told them he's not going to eat with them again, let them know clearly that he's going he's to die, and they're going, hey, I think, I think I'm going to be better than you. I'm going to be ruling a bigger kingdom than you're going to be ruling. Jesus is, is, is dealing with this, and then it goes on and says, Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Let him who is the greatest among you become the, as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater than, greater than the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus had washed their feet, for goodness sakes. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. He's complimenting them. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow. And then instantly he turns to Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, then go strengthen your brothers. And, of course, Peter said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. And he said, Peter, I say to you, the cock will not crow today until you have denied me three times, even that you even know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without a purse and bag and sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along, likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you that that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he has numbered with the transgressors, for he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, we have two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. It's easy to pick on Peter here. But I want to say to you, I believe he's talking to all of the disciples. Peter probably was the preeminent one in their discussion about who was being the greatest. I don't know. I can imagine with Peter's personality that we see in Scripture. But if we would go to Mark, and you're not, we're not going to go there, but Mark 14, we see these same words in Mark and Matthew. Basically, it's the Lord saying, you will fall away. But he doesn't say you will fall away. He says, you will all fall away. And then Peter steps in and says, oh, no, not me, Lord. Even if they all do, even if all those lesser than me do, I'm not going to fall away. Matter of fact, I'll die for you. And we read at the end of that section of Scripture in verse 31, and they were all saying the same thing. All the disciples were saying the same thing. In Matthew, we see the almost exact same wording. The Lord's warning them that they're all going to re- 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 run, they're going to reject him, they're going to leave. And Peter steps up and does a little bragging, and all the rest of them are doing the same thing. 
We'll die with you, Lord. And all the rest of them are saying the same thing. So I want to just offer to you that I believe even though we pick on Peter here, Jesus was talking to every one of them. And Peter was the one foolish enough to open his mouth, as the Lord knew he would. I want to look at this section of Scripture. To me, it's just interesting that this is where, what God deals with in the midst of where he's at in his life, walking to the cross. It reaffirms to me how horrible and evil pride is and how destructive pride is and how important humility is, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing where our authority comes from, knowing where our strength comes from. It's not from me, even if I got a vicious duffel bag. It's not from me. It's all him. So I want to look at first at Christ's warning, backing up into verse 31 that I just read. Satan has demanded, that word demanded in this translation that I'm using probably isn't the best word because we can come to a wrong conclusion. We can come to the conclusion that Satan went to God and pounded on the table of his throne and said, I demand to do this. That's not what it means. It means that Satan came and obtained permission by asking. The definition of that word in the, in the Greek is a desire to have. So Satan went to the Lord and got permission. I hope you understand and know when the Lord gives permission to Satan to do anything to one of his children, it's actually for our good. That may ruin some people's theology that Satan can be used as a pawn in God's plan, but I believe he totally can. And I believe we see it here very clearly. It says he comes and he asks permission then to sift him like wheat. You know whose job we hope it is to sift us? The Holy Spirit. But I have a sneaking suspicion if we resist the Holy Spirit, God will go to plan B, whatever that is. Because what he wants to occur in our life is ultimately for our good to to accomplish his purposes. As much as I don't want to give Satan credit for anything, I, I really don't feel like I am here. I believe what we're seeing is he is nothing but a pawn in God's hands. He can't do anything unless the Lord gives him permission in the life of a believer or unless we open the door and allow him into our life through unrepentant sin. So Satan's access and influence is limited in our life. And as I said, I believe he's talking to all the disciples here, not just believers. And he's showing us clearly that Satan desires believers. He desires believers. It's not about, hey, I'm gonna, Satan's after all the other Jews that haven't converted yet. No, he's not, he's not after all those pagans out there that haven't converted yet. He's after us. He's after us believers because we are the ones that can increase the kingdom of God as we work with the Holy Spirit. The unbelievers are no challenge and no danger to the kingdom of darkness. You are. We are. Those 12 guys, well, 11 now because Judas is basically history they were going to turn the world upside down. It's our job to continue to turn the world upside down for Christ. So God warns them, Christ warns them, Jesus warns them, in particular he's utilizing Peter as his warning tool. And and then in verse 32, he encourages them. I have. Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, but I rebuked him so that he can't bother you. That shows me that what's taking place is God is totally in control. 
And he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. That your faith may not fail. First of all, I just love this picture. Jesus hadn't ascended yet, but Jesus was their intercessor. As believers, guess what? He's our intercessor. And I can guarantee you this, when Jesus prays a prayer, it's in the perfect will of the Father. And if he prays in the perfect will of the Father, I can guarantee you it's going to be answered. And notice, though, the humility of Jesus. Here he is, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And he humbles himself, Peter. You're going to come under some attack. There's going to be a real sifting take place. It's going to manifest in you denying me three times before the cock crows. But I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. Your trust will not fail. If Peter would have been understanding and open to what he was hearing, there should have been no fear. Because we knew, he should have known, that Jesus' prayer is going to be answered. When the victory comes, in whatever trial you and I are facing, it's a victory of grace. It's by grace. I mean, we're good at what we can do. You have talents and gifts and intellect. We seem to think we can figure out things just perfectly and get ourselves out of it. And then anytime things work out, we pat ourselves on the back and give ourselves credit and say, I knew I could do that. Matter of fact, most of us train our children the same way. Come on, figure it out. Think about it. You can do this. Now, I know I may seem like I'm you know, splitting hairs here, but the reality is the Bible says we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, and there's no good thing in me whatsoever, and I can't do anything in my own strength of any value. So whenever there's a victory in our life, it's a grace victory given to us by God. And he tells them then, when you receive the victory, when you achieve the victory, he says, I've prayed for you. You're going to be sifted. I've prayed for you with your faith will not fail. And when you come back, you know, he didn't lose his salvation. He didn't deny. He didn't quit believing that Jesus was the son of God. Fear took over. And his trust was weakened. But he says, when you come back, Interesting what he says. Strengthen your brothers. I think there's a little bit of a message in there of the power of your testimony. You know, sometimes we're so afraid to to encourage people for the Lord because we think we don't know enough scripture. We haven't memorized enough scripture and the word of God is powerful and it's what sets people free. But there's power in your testimony. The word of God in your testimony telling others what God has done, how he's proven himself faithful in your life. It's powerful. It builds other people's faith. And here's what he's saying to Peter. Peter, when you come through this mess, I've prayed for you. You're going to come through it. But when you do, strengthen your brothers. And we'll get a better picture why in just a moment. But before we go there, I I want us to look at Peter's response. I don't want us to be judging Peter. I want us to be seeing what human, human beings will do especially where pride is still a big issue. In Luke 22, verse 33, it says, and, I, and again, I'd like to think I would be better than this, but you know, the Lord's just been warning him and encouraging him, and he tells him, you're wrong, God. You're wrong, Jesus. He says, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Yes. It's the kind of guy I want on my side. Peter, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. I want to give Peter and the disciples and each one of us 
the advantage of thinking, you know, I think what was stirred in Peter was a love for the Lord. God, Jesus, I'm with you. I've, I've been with you all along. I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. His emotions were stirred, which shows us how unreliable our emotions can be at times. If his love for the Lord and his enthusiasm and his emotional vigor at that moment could have caused him to be a martyr for Christ, he'd have been ready to go. But we know how the story went. His emotions weren't going to carry him through this testing. He was going to deny that he even knew who Jesus was three times. His self-confidence, however, wasn't shaken. God has given him this warning. His emotions get stirred up. His self-confidence isn't shaken. Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to. Even if everybody else does, I'll be there for you. And the warning seemed to have very little impact or make an impression on Peter really at all or the others because they were all saying the same thing. And notice probably most importantly this warning didn't prevent Peter from failing. Jesus himself had warned him. And he really let him know how serious it was because he, had to, he told him, Peter, I'm praying for you that your faith won't fail. Man, if the Son of God has to be praying for me that my faith won't fail, something's coming down the road. But it didn't catch his attention. His pride, his self-confidence, all of the disciples. And Jesus goes on. You know, Bob, Pastor Bob was teaching on this, so I, I, but most of us, a lot of us weren't there. There's so many scriptures that talk about pride and humility. Pride comes before the fall. I can't find that exactly in my Bible, but I find things every bit as bad or worse. Pride comes, and then comes disgrace. Pride comes, and then comes dishonor. By pride comes nothing but strife. By pride comes only arguing, bickering, dissensions. On the flip side, submit to God, humble yourself before him. And it's interesting, when you read, there's two or three different places where you read about humbling yourself before God, submitting to God, and you know what's right there tied to it? Spiritual warfare. Submit, therefore, to God, then resist the devil, and then he must flee. We see this example, humility. God resists who? The proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And it just drives home again how important this is when Jesus, knowing that he's only got a very, very few hours left with his disciples, knowing the torment and the agony he was facing, thought it was important to address this issue. Pride. And then he goes on in verse 35 and 36. And again, it's like a warning. He says to them, When I sent you out without money or your money belt or a bag and sandals, you didn't lack anything at all, did you? And they said, no, nothing. He had sent them out. He had sent them out two by two. He had sent them out. And they didn't go very far because they were in their home area. He'd sent them out not a great distance. 
and he didn't send them out for a very long time. And their needs were all met by the Lord, through friends, through, through people they were talking to, sharing the good news of the gospel with, people who, whose family members they were healing, casting demons out of. All their needs were met. And then he says, But, but now, whoever has a money belt, take it along with you. Likewise, also a bag, take it along with you. And whoever does not have a sword to, to go out and sell his coat and buy a sword. Basically what he's saying, and I think we've all done this in our lives at one time or another, but probably with our children. You know, we're training up our kids. We're teaching them something. And we know what we're going to just have to let go one of these times. And they're going to have to fa- fail or succeed on their own. So we start out by helping them do whatever it is. Maybe it's as simple as riding a bike. Maybe it's as traumatic as dropping your daughter off at college that first time and you see all the freshmen and senior guys. Yes, Lord. I hope I've trained them up well. But we know in those initial stages, we're right there. Matter of fact, we planned everything. You know what? How many of us have ever sent our kid to camp when they're about 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 years old and told them, just pack what you need and we'll, you go? Heck no, we pack their suitcase, we put everything they're going to need in it, we make sure everything's there, we even put in a few surprises and treats for them because we don't want them to be uncomfortable. And then we let them go. But there comes a place where we, we change it a little bit. We, we kind of tell them you're going to go do this, but we prepare everything behind the scenes as best we can. And then we watch from around the corner or out the window just to make sure because if something goes wrong, we're going to be there right now to make sure they don't fail and get hurt or something. But ultimately, there comes that time. And you say, well, Lord, done what I know to do. They're yours now completely. I'm out of the picture and you let them go. They better be ready. And I believe this is what the Lord is showing the disciples. He says, hey, when I sent you out before, did you lack anything? Uh-uh. You didn't have to take money. You didn't have to take your overnight bag. You didn't have to take clothes. You didn't even have to put sandals on your feet. Did you lack anything wherever you went? No, sir, Lord, everything. You're so good. He says, but it's going to change. It's about to change. So he starts out with a remember when, and then he goes into verse 36, but now. But now what? Circumstances are going to change. It's going to be tough. And he could just as well be speaking to you and me. It's going to be tough. You're going to to be rejected by people. You're going to go before the courts. You're going to be thrown in prison. You're going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to be stoned. Some of you are going to be have your heads cut off. Some of you are going to be hung. Some of you are going to be crucified. It's going to be tough. Make provision. Do all that you can. Use some common sense. I like that. Use some common sense. Prepare to go. Take what you think you might need. Get some provision. Whatever you're going to need, go. And then he says this kind of strange thing, and their disciples' reaction is even more strange. He says, go with all the provisions you can, and then if you don't have a sword, sell your clothes your outer garments, and go buy a sword. How many of you know it had nothing to do with the real sword? 
I mean, the disciples, they didn't get it. They said, well, Lord, look at this. We got two. Let's take on the world. We got two swords. It has nothing to do with the sword. He says, make sure you have a weapon. Make sure you're ready for spiritual warfare. Make sure that you have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in you, and you can go in my authority with that sword. You need to have the attitude of a warrior. I'm going to go forth, I'm going to make provision, and I'm going to fight with everything I've got. And I'm going to make sure the one thing I do have is the Word of God. The Word of God. I'm going to fight. If everything else, if I lose everything else, I'm still going to go. And whatever it takes, I'm going to have the Word of God. Because you're going to face warfare. You are going to face warfare. You're going to face an enemy that hates God, therefore he hates you. You're going to be the way that he tries to torment the Father by destroying your faith, destroying anything and everything about you that he possibly can. The steal, kill, and destroy enemy that we face. But we're to go. In Ephesians 6, it talks about putting on the armor of God. It says, be strong in the Lord. That's where my strength comes from. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. And then it goes on and goes through putting on all the armor of God. I'm not going to go through all of that, but I encourage you to read it in Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10 through 17. But I want to point out the very last part of that section of Scripture. It says in verse 17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's our primary weapon against the attacks of the enemy. How can we use that? You should be using that every day, many times a day. How many of you have thoughts of insecurities pop into your head? How many of you have thoughts of guilt or shame pop into your head? How many of you at times feel condemnation sneaking into your head? They're all attacks of the enemy. They're all lies from the pit of hell. How do we confront them? With truth from the word of God. You're no good. I am worthy. I am valuable in my Father's sight. I'm a precious jewel, precious pearl. I'm a child of God. Nobody loves you. I love you without conditions is the truth. We confront it with the, with the truth of the Word of God all day long. You get in an argument, quote-unquote, or debate with someone, no, don't argue with them. Don't debate them. Let them spew whatever they want to spew and say, well, here's what I believe the Word of God says. Let them argue with the word of God. Let them confront truth directly. If all you've got is opinions, you're just going to argue and fight, and whoever has the loudest voice wins. And God doesn't. The word of God, be prepared with the sword of the Spirit. When you are confronting things that seem overwhelming, I'm never going to get through this. The valley is so dark. He promises, I'm going to go with you through the valley. We will come out the other side. The word of God. I can't do it. I can't handle it. I'll never survive this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm so stupid. I'll never understand why, I, why am I this dumb. Wait a minute. I have the mind of Christ. And I, if any of you lack wisdom, ask the, for wisdom and the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom. The truth, being equipped with the truth. If we do not get the word of God in us, we are going into warfare and we're going to go into warfare. So you're going into warfare unarmed. 
So when a preacher stands up here and encourages you to read the Word of God, it's just not because it's a physical exercise. It's because it's the most valuable weapon we have to live godly lives, bring honor and glory to the Father, and advance the kingdom of God. And that seems like the directive. It seems like that's the reason we're created, to bring glory and honor to Him, to advance the kingdom, go into all the world, doing what? Well, if you want to know, you've got to go out with authority, go out with power. How do you do that? You know the Word of God. You know the authority that you do have. You know the power that we do have. You go out there in your own strength and you're going to get your rear end kicked. You're going to be another Christian casualty laying along the side of the road no longer fit for battle. And I believe this is what Jesus is telling his disciples here. You know, when I was with you, I took almost all the bullets. But I'm leaving now and the bullets and arrows are still going to fly. Do everything you can in the natural to prepare yourself for the war but you're going to go in my strength, being armed with the sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And I believe the disciples just at this time still didn't understand because their answer is just really kind of ridiculous. Lord, look, we have two swords. That'd be great. You know what? We're all going to go into battle. The enemy's fully armed. Here, I got two swords. Which two of you would like them? When we get through fighting with them, there's nobody left. And then Jesus' response is what? What's he say? It's enough. Now, you may misread that and think, all right, two swords, that's enough, all right. No, he's saying, okay, that's enough talk. I really believe that's what he's saying. It's enough. I've given you the lesson. I've given you the warning. I've given you the encouragement. I've done all I can to prepare, and I understand you don't understand yet. It's enough. But take to heart what the Word of God says. He told the disciples, when you go through this, when you come out the other side, be strengthening your brothers. You know what? We can see what the disciples went through. We can see how they came out the other side. And we should be strengthened by their story. And then our stories can be used to strengthen others. We are overcomers. God's delivered us from so many things. And granted, there's things we still need to be delivered of. But we have a testimony. If we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have a testimony. They'll get it. So quickly, some of the points I want us to remember is one, Satan will attack believers. And to stretch your theology, sometimes God's letting them for his glory, for his honor. If we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, I don't believe it'll be near as necessary. But God wants us equipped. God will use whatever comes for good. According to his promise, he will work all things for good for those who believe, who trust in him. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And been a called according to his purpose. If you've been called, if you've been saved, it's because he has a purpose. And then to be reminded, we have an intercessor. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he is seated at the right hand of God and he's praying for us, for you and me. He's interceding on our behalf against all the accusations the enemy would like to throw at us. 
And we need to be committed for the battle. We need to be armed. We can go into these battles with confidence as long as our confidence is rightly placed in Christ. Look what happened to the disciples that night when Jesus was arrested. They scattered in all different directions. We don't even know. The Bible doesn't even tell us where they all went. they, They left. We hear about Peter. But look what happened to him after that. When their faith did not fail them. When they came back to that place of trust. And then... God didn't just send them into the local neighborhood in their homeland for a couple days to do a few miracles. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. Frankly, we're kind of products of what they did. Isn't that amazing? And now he says to us, go into all the world, make disciples. Everything I've said here so far today, there has to be a starting point when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Because otherwise, none of it applies. None of it applies. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the Bible doesn't say you need to do a whole bunch of good things. It doesn't say you need to be baptized. Well, it does, but not until after you believe. It doesn't say any. It says just believe in me, who I am, and what I've done. And surrender your lives. Surrender your lives. Admit you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Repent of that sin. Turn away from the sin and turn towards God. And the moment you cry out to Him, He will redeem you and you will be born again by the Spirit of God. And then everything I talked about today is at your disposal. The victory has been assured. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that we can see the humanity and the humanness of the disciples, especially through Peter. God, and we see your love, your mercy, and your grace through stories like this. And know that that same love, that same mercy, that same grace is available to us today through Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray that no one would leave here today without a personal relationship with Jesus. And Lord, I pray that all who know you as their Lord and Savior would grasp and understand to the fullest extent of the benefits of our salvation, who we are in Jesus, that our trust and our faith in you would not waver, that we would not allow circumstances to impact our feelings and emotions to the degree that we begin to believe the lies of the enemy, that we stand on the truth of your word, I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to your word, give us an insatiable hunger for your word that would be equipped in every way for every good work and for all the warfare that we are going to confront. I thank you, God, that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. We thank you for your word that you've given us. Lord, I pray now that as we leave this place, we go as your ambassadors representing Jesus, that we're going out into the world where the attacks of the enemy will come and where the opportunities to advance the kingdom will also come. So I pray you watch over us, keep us safe, that you would give us ears to hear your spirit, 
and that we would respond in obedience and that all this would be for your glory, for your honor. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.